Hey, if a, a pro tennis player called you and was like, Hey Mike, you know what? I need you to be my guy. It's going to be, you know, 30 weeks of travel per year. And by the way, I want you to be my physio too. So I need you to go to massage therapy school and become a great manual therapist. You're like, I don't have time to go to school for six months, do 1500 hours of massage and then leave my family for half the year. It's just not right. appealing. So you have to be willing to say no to a lot of stuff. If you want to be very kind of specialized and nuanced in one place and I decided to do that early in my career, and I really haven't looked back. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I am your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by the one, the only, Eric Cressy. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a very brief recap of what is new in my neck of the woods, what's going on, and yeah, just give you a little update as to what's going on in life. So things are wrapping up, for lack of a better term, at IFAST with uh, my off-season training. A lot of my college kids have already taken off, said goodbye to a couple more last week. My guy Larry Austin is heading home. Hopefully he uh, gets a, a contract locked in for some overseas basketball very soon. My girl Ashley Prangy is actually transferring from OSU to Auburn. So very excited to watch her play some softball in this upcoming year. So it's weird. You know, I go from, you know, 10, 12, 15 athletes down to like two or three. So the next couple of weeks, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I still got a handful but I know, you know, very quickly things are wrapping up and I'm going to be pretty bored here in a couple weeks. So got them finishing up. Luckily, that gives me a little bit more time to emphasize my soccer coaching prowess. As I mentioned last week, I'm coaching both kiddos. It's been a lot of fun so far. Definitely different dynamics. You know, you got first and second grade boys twice a week. And then I got fifth and sixth grade girls two other nights of the week. So it's definitely two totally different dynamics. One is kind of like herding a bunch of wild cats. The other is kind of managing moods and personalities and all of that fun stuff. But kind of felt like young Pep Guardiola this weekend or Jurgen Klopp, both of uh, the teams won. So that felt really good. Cade's team, I don't know. It's little kids, so I don't even really keep track. I just know that they won and our girls won, I think, 6-3, which was pretty exciting because... If you would have asked myself or Jess, because I was vending to her on Thursday night, we did not have a good practice. And I was telling her, I don't know how we're going to score goals. I don't think we're going to be good. And then we went out on Saturday and just crushed. Like the girls played amazing, great spacing, great passing, very unselfish, just all in all, it was an awesome day. So I told the kids that morning, it was like sunny, it was like 75, no humidity. It was the best day we've had in a couple weeks here and I just said the soccer gods are shining down on us. So it felt good, but like anything in life, try not to get too high, too low, and uh, we'll see what this week brings us. But definitely a good week to the soccer season. Saturday night was capped off with a date with my amazing bride. We celebrated 17 years of marital bliss, or as she probably likes to think of it, 17 years of putting up with me. But man, it was just really nice. Got to go out, have a nice dinner, enjoyed some time together. I don't know about you, but if there is a significant other and or kids in your life, especially now, it's just hard. You know, it feels like a little bit harder to go out. It feels like it's a little bit harder to find a sitter. It's harder to carve out some of that time. So it was just really nice to get out, enjoy that time together, had an amazing dinner downtown, and uh, just to reconnect. So that was great. Uh, and then... The last thing that I kind of have written down on my topics or agenda list is there's some big things coming down the pipeline for IFAST. Really excited about some things that we're getting ready to work on, and I can't fully divulge all of the things right now, but definitely some big moves coming on our part, and as those get closer, I will definitely keep you informed. But lots of good stuff going on in my neck of the woods. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then I'm going to stop rambling because this episode with Eric is awesome and I think you're going to love it. So quick break and then we're going to jump into this episode. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me, or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill and my professional success exploded as a result. 
But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple, restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q and A's, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. Today's guest probably needs no introduction whatsoever, but just in case you've been living under a rock for about the last 20 years, here goes anyway. Eric Cressy is the co-founder and president of Cressy Sports Performance, with locations in both Massachusetts and Florida. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also the director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. So needless to say, he's kind of a big deal. In this show, Eric and I talk a little bit of business and a whole lot about baseball. We start by talking about how in the heck he manages Cressy Sport Performance and working for the Yankees, and the power of planning that makes it all happen. We talk about the evolution of his philosophy in training baseball players, and why he shifted, at least to some degree, away from pure strength development. And last but not least, we talk about why so many youth baseball players are broken, and the three things he would do right now, today, to keep more kids healthy and on the field. This was such a great conversation, not only because I've known Eric for so long, but because there's palpable humility and growth that I can hear in his answers, so that's really cool as well. But enough for me, let's do this. Eric, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to catch up with you. It's been a minute. Start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. If somebody's been living under a rock for like 20 years, tell us who Sure you thing. I think um, any Mike Robinson, Eric Cressy collaboration has to start with the fact that we are in fact two different people <laughs> for, for many years, whether it was editors or, or people sending random emails to ask about shoulder and knee pain that thought we were the same person. So yeah. Mike is in fact in Indiana. I am in Florida slash Massachusetts. So yeah, briefly, uh, basically I, I co-founded a facility called Cressy Sports Performance in Massachusetts in 2007. Um, we opened up in uh, Florida. We're in Palm Beach Gardens now. That was back in 2014. So two facilities in two states um, catering largely um, to a baseball population. Work in the private sector led to you know, some opportunities in, in professional baseball as well. Um, so I consulted for the Minnesota Twins in 2018, 2019. And then in December of 2019, um, signed on with the, uh, the New York Yankees as their director of player health and performance. Do some writing, speaking, consulting uh, when the when the world allows us to <laughs> go out and, and do fun things like that. Right, and then I'm um, also a, a husband as well as a father of three daughters. So, I think that's my uh, my 15 second elevator pitch. Oh my gosh, dude! Yeah, <laughs> the epitome of having your plate full is you, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> You're not kidding. That's awesome, man. So obviously, you and I go way back, and you've been on the show a handful of times. Yeah. So, like, what's new? In your neck of the woods, man. Like since the last time we caught up, what have you added to that plate? Yeah, I got to think about what were we 2018 or 19? When was that? I think I think it wasn't last year. It wasn't yeah, the COVID year, but it was definitely pre-COVID. So yeah, um, yeah, the world's a little bit different since then. So yeah, that was uh, to be honest. That's when I I transitioned from a, a consultant role in, in Minnesota and then moved on to to the Yankees and a you know, in a much more involved role than I've been previously with a lot more travel, um, a lot more responsibilities. So I, I kind of had dipped my feet in the shallow end of working in professional baseball and realized it was something that was, um, was, was fun to me. I wanted to, to jump in with a cannonball in the deep end. I think, um, 
one of the things I learned all the way back in 2015, I was, I was fortunate to be the strength and conditioning coach for um, the Team USA 1800 national team. So we, we traveled, you know, for, for a block of time in that summer to Japan and won a gold medal. And, you know, it's interesting. That was, you know, there were I don't know, nine or 10 first round draft picks on that team. Three of those kids are already in the big leagues now. And I look back on that as a really formative experience for me for, for a couple of reasons. One, I love the fact that I didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I think one of the things happens in, in entrepreneurship, especially when you, you put your name on the facility, which I, I kind of regret doing, you're always expected to have the answers. You're always expected to make the hard decisions. And, and you know, you have to really constantly check yourself to pull back and, and be part of that team and, and not go rogue. And you know, I've learned to do that, I think, well in entrepreneurship, but in the USA baseball experience, it was, it was very cool to, you know, it was, it was above all, it's about humility. I mean, I was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for 17 year old athletes. I was <laughs> catching bullpens. I was doing whatever I needed to do to, to help that team win. And, and I, and I loved it. Um, so I, I kind of, in that moment, when I got back from Asia, you know, with a gold medal and a cool experience under my belt, I, I talked to my wife about, Hey, you know, I've, I've had these opportunities come up in, in pro baseball. I'm going to take them a little bit more seriously. And, and so I had turned a lot of them down over the years and not really gone past the initial stages of discussion. And so that, you know, those discussions really started to happen actually more so in 2016, 2017. Um, and sure enough, they, you know, they wound up becoming a consulting agreement and, you know, it, it moved on to an actual employee scenario. So I, I think it was good for me because it made me realize I wanted to be you know, meticulously involved in whether a team won or lost. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be part of, you know, building out something that was, you know, bigger than I was, uh, much like the facilities like that. And I, and I think also, you know, anytime you're self-employed, I'm sure you appreciate this too. You almost wonder if you're employable. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I know I, I'm not. I know yeah. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't want to just have so much autonomy that you have no idea. And so I, I tested the waters with that. And I, I'd like to think I'm actually a very good employee as well. But, you know, my, my role in in the Yankees organization is, is, is a little bit of a hybrid. I'm, I'm still a director position, so I, I have to lead others. But I also have people to whom I, I report directly. So it's, it's kind of a nice blend of the two. Yeah. No, I love that, man. I actually want to jump ahead because I kind of saved yeah. this for last, but I think this would make for a perfect segue way like obviously you've got the yankees gig you still have csp two locations two states as you alluded to like how do you balance that work and how do you find time because both of these are high level positions right it's not like you've got like a side hustle where you're doing something a couple hours a day like these are two high level positions how do you find a way to balance that yeah. Uh, so the first thing I would say is it's, it's all heavily predicated on having really, really wonderful people in my life. You know, first and foremost is my wife, Anna, who is an absolute rock star. And, and, you know, she's an optometrist with a practice in Massachusetts, but she also is our business director at the facility in Florida. So she manages, you know, the chaos of a very busy facility, particularly in the era of COVID where kind of everyone flocked to Florida yeah. um, with a lot of different revenue centers and, you know, a large staff that expands seemingly daily, you know, and she obviously works it's a ton on the home front, you know, both the moves back and forth between Florida and Massachusetts and all that. So it is, you know, to some degree a moving target. You know, th this was really made possible above all else by my business partner, Pete, and then my, our director of performance, John O'Neill, um, at our Massachusetts facility. When I decided to do this, I knew that the Yankees' responsibility, you know, during the season um, would really cut into my time in Massachusetts, my availability here. And, you know, it was made possible because those guys have done such a good job of, of building out really a, a well-oiled machine that that works when I'm not here. Because I'm typically our split is seven month, five months where we'll go, you know, October 1st, all the way up until the beginning of May down in Florida and then spend, you know, summers up here. That probably even gets shorter moving forward as our daughters, you know, advance in school where we don't want to put them in late and take them out early. Right. Um, but, you know, so I, to, for, for all intents and purposes, we make sure that we structure Massachusetts that, so that it could run completely without me. And then my job is to come in and collaborate with Pete on, you know, strategic initiatives for the brand to kind of be a little bit more of a, maybe a figurehead, do a lot more teaching, you know, be available for, you know, consultations from out of, out of town and really hard cases. So more of my roles here are, are just different. It's not just a, you know, Hey, you need to coach from 10 AM to 4 PM today. It's right. more like, Hey, here are the things that we have for you. 
But when stuff's not scheduled, like by all means, you know, go to New York, do your thing there, travel with the team, you know, be available. So we just, you know, we're, we're recording this here on August 12th. You know, I, I was pretty much off for a week, you know, in, in the end of July and early August, because I, I traveled down to check on our Florida facility and then, you know, met the team while they were on the road. And, you know, we had the trade deadline. So that was kind of an all hands on deck scenario. So right. it just, uh, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of planning, but I'm always reminded, I think it was, um, I think it was Randy Zuckerberg. Uh, who, who once said, um, she said, fit family, friends, fitness, career, sleep, pick three. And, and I, <laughs> yep. when I, I remember reading it many, many years ago and it was, it was an eye opening thing for me. Cause I'm like, I'm doing this by accident. You know, I, right. obviously it was, you know, fitness, um, it was family and really, <laughs> you know, I, I guess career is obviously the third one of it. But I found that I was kind of getting three and a half because most of my social acquaintances are people who are involved in my career, right? They're, yeah. you know, you and I texting back and forth on how our families are doing, or, you know, we're good friends with a lot of baseball players and their families and I don't sleep well. So it kind of, <laughs> as I look at it, I was like, I'm chipping away at three and a half, but I, I just don't have like this huge network of like, you know, old high school buddies and things like that, where we go out of town, you know, go on golfing trips or anything like that. And I don't, you know, I, I don't mean that disparagingly. They're, they're wonderful people and stuff, but I just, um, you know, we found our social kind of outlets somewhere else. And a lot of them come through our family time, dropping the kids off at school and stuff too. So I, I think it just comes down to really meticulous planning and honestly saying no in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I, I look at you, you've built out like this amazing presence in the basketball and the soccer world. But hey, if a, a pro tennis player called you and was like, hey, Mike, you know what? I need you to be my guy. It's going to be, you know, 30 weeks of travel per year. And by the way, I want you to be my physio too. So I need you to go to massage therapy school and become a great manual therapist. You're like, I don't have time to go to school for six months, do 1500 hours of massage and then leave my family for half the year. It's just not right. appealing. So you have to be willing to say no to a lot of stuff if you want to be very kind of specialized and nuanced in one place. And I decided to do that early in my career and I really haven't looked back. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. So I like to talk training with you and especially in the sense of, you know, how your philosophy has changed. Cause again, I think this is the fourth time you've been on the show and, and I love diving in and learning more about like, Hey, like you're 20 years in now, right? Like what have you changed or what has evolved about your training philosophy in the last couple of years. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, we, we joke, if you don't look back at programs you wrote five years ago and do a face palm, you're probably not growing the way that you should. You know, I'd, I'd say the biggest place where I can describe our training has, as improving is on the synergy side of things. So, you know, here we are, we're, we're 2021 having this discussion, you know, really around 2010 was when we brought a pitching coordinator in, into our facility. It was Matt Blake, who's now our pitching yeah. coach in, in the big leagues, of the Yankees. So if you look at kind of how our, our pitching coaches have been like almost like a, a grooming ground for, for professional coaches, right? So Matt was first, he's now with the Yankees. Christian was second, he's now with the Padres. Uh, Kyle Driscoll was third. He's now with the Mets. Um, Kevin McAvoy was his assistant. He's now with the Braves. You know, Jordan is next. And I don't know who's, who's going to try to post Jordan next. They'll probably listen to this and steal him tomorrow. But <laughs> you, you have this path. And, and so I, I think early on, you know, I was an outsider to baseball, right? I, I played up until eighth grade. I was a better tennis player. I was a third baseman. So I didn't really speak the pitching language. Like if you would ask me in 2007 how to hold a a four seam fastball or something like that. I, I wouldn't have been able to show it the way that I can now. So I had to do a lot more listening, ask a lot more questions. And I think early on, we had a lot of success because being an outsider was an advantage because you, you didn't take stupid things, you know, for granted, just because we always did, it wasn't a good enough you know, reason for me. So, you know, that was in the context of, Hey, we're not going to distance run guys. Um, Hey, you know, it's not just lift heavy stuff on the football program or do the foo for rehab program. Hey, there's something in the middle. You know, I, I ex got exposed more and more to people and, you know, we built out this, you know, kind of advanced med ball progression. Things just kind of evolved over the years, but I think you stagnate after a while. And when we had to do it on our own, the, like the internet wasn't there where you couldn't go and read the, you know, 500 articles I've written on baseball strength edition, like, like they are now. And you couldn't go through an intern where, you know, I look around the industry now and there's probably 30 former interns who have facilities that, you know, indirectly compete with us, even though we love with those people. Right. Um, so 
things have changed, but you know, around 2010, 2011, when, when Matt came in, you know, he's a guy who was a college pitcher who had a really keen eye. He'd gotten involved with video analysis, you know, right view pro was kind of the, the name of the game. This was before you could use slow-mo iPhones. This was before, you know, edgertronic cameras had changed the game. And Matt really, whether he realized it at the time or not, challenged me to think of things in a more synergistic way. Is you know, how do we relate what we're doing from our assessment standpoint, from our training standpoint, to what we are ultimately trying to achieve on the mound? And then obviously hitting, you know, fielding, running, whatever it may be. And I think, you know, early on we 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 had to find our way with it. And and I think that's where I look when I look around the injury industry right now. There are a lot of people who say they're doing baseball specific training and they're where we were in 2010, 2011. They're, they're trying to find their way. They just, they don't see it. They don't understand how, you know, osteokinematics are different than arthrokinematics. They think that if you just lift heavy and throw weighted balls, it's going to work. Right. And I just realized that, you know, we could do it better. And, yeah. and I've, I've taken my licks and I, I look back and there were athletes that I'm like, man, if we had had access to, you know, Rapsodo or TrackMan circa 2012, I could have changed this guy's career. Like he could have learned this slider faster. You know, we could have picked up on the fact that, you know, his arm action was inverted at weight bearing foot strike. And there was no way he was ever going to throw a breaking ball for a strike from that position. But the, the technology has improved so much are really, really deep passionate by the Yankees role because we have amazingly brilliant analysts and, and coaches who are skilled, not just in the context of interpreting a lot of this information, but also building sample sizes out. We have guys who can manage the data. We have people who are skilled in more learning stuff and all that. So I, I've been able to learn a lot more about the game on a very microscopic level. And it's it's what it's done above all else. It's made me a better coach from a programming standpoint, but just as importantly, I can create context for athletes a lot easier, whether that's in describing the positions that they need to get to in their sporting demands, or even in just, you know, kind of, you know, speaking to things that they struggle to do, you know, here's the movement issue that is making it harder for you to throw a glove side fastball. So I think those are the places where we've, we've gotten better and better. And, and certainly along the way we've been exposed. I mean, you know, a lot of bill stuff has been incredibly impactful with just looking at wide versus narrow infrastructural angles and, you know, appreciating that, you know, a lot of those guys that we were, we were struggling to, you know, either preserve or improve range of motion with, we were, we were taking guys that were out of alignment, you know what yeah. I mean? Or we were, we were taking a hammer to a problem that needed a screwdriver, you know? So I think that has changed. And I think maybe, you know, even building on that just a little bit more, um, I think we're lifting guys less now than we ever have before. And um, that's not necessarily that we're not training. We're just training differently. Yeah. We're, we're recognizing that maybe you don't need to be as strong as we initially thought you, you needed to be, that it's a lot harder to build a, a, a premier level of elasticity via both the contractile and non-contractile elements. So obviously the muscular tendinous units, you know, and then also the fascial system it takes a lot of reps and then I think that's you know probably one reason why early sports specialization is inherently at odds with you know creating athletes who are conditioned long term to, to perform at a high level. So we've made adjustments in that capacity. We we train rotation way more and way harder than we ever have before. And and a lot of that volume has been shifted away from just lifting heavy stuff and bilateral work and assuming that a 500 pound deadlift was going to get you throwing 95. <laughs> um, and instead, you know, attacking things just by other mediums with med balls and using the Proteus and all that stuff. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So this kind of, again, streamlines into my next question because you and I were texting before the show and you mentioned that, you know, with all this quote unquote baseball specific training, there's lots of new injury trends in the game and sports med is honestly just trying to do its best to keep up. So I obviously don't follow the game, at least baseball, to the same degree that you do. So would you mind elaborating on that just a little bit more? Yeah, and this is this is really multifactorial. I, I think you have to appreciate baseball across all levels to understand what's really happening, right? So at the youngest ages, there's more specialization happening. Yep. So a lot of these structural deviations from normalcy are becoming part of, of adolescent development, right? So we're seeing UCL injuries in, you know, 13 and 14 year old kids 
when that was unheard of. Maybe you'd see some growth plate injuries, but now we're seeing ligament stuff. You know, so you know when I look at at pre-draft MRIs before before the image draft, there's no such thing as a normal elbow anymore. Everybody's got something going on, and and we have actually research that shows like if you compare like a Japanese you know study of 12 year old elbows in the baseball world compared to American one, the Japanese elbows are are substantially worse. So this isn't just like hey everybody's got this. The kids who throw the most. Are, are the most likely to break. So there's actually research that, that demonstrates that this isn't just like an incidental finding, you know, where if you looked at like patellar tendons and all your basketball guys, you're going to see a bunch of tendinopathy that's not um, symptomatic. So that's the first challenge is that kids are broken before they ever get to major league baseball. Um, the sec- second thing is that, you know, the outcome measures are, are inherently objective now. You, you hit the ball hard, so exit velocity, or you throw the ball hard, pitching velocity. And there's there's a few different things that contribute to that. One, we have better video analysis, so we can optimize technique much better. The coaching is inherently improved to, you know, random versus block practice, um, just understanding what actually makes uh, pitchers throw harder and hitters, you know, have insane exit velocities. Right. So those numbers are going sky high. We have a, a crazy amount of, you know, intent. Sometimes it's without direction. There's more on that in a second, but you know, as we go to these higher levels, the harder you throw, it's, it's really just a physics equation, right? You're more likely to get hurt if you throw harder. Average fastball velocity has gone up substantially over the course of time. Um, and player body weight actually went up really for two decades um, during the steroid era. Um, yeah. We saw, you know, the average major player, I want to say went up like 12% in body weight. And what was interesting is during that time period, there was, there were a lot of bad things in the game, right? There were amphetamines, there were performance enhancing drugs, all those, a lot of those things were the things that helped players get out on the field, even when they were hurt. Yeah. And the game has been cleaned up and the players have found a way to be bigger and stronger, but they've done it without that stuff. And that's, you know, some of the stuff that I think gets overlooked with respect to some of the injuries um, that take place for sure. I think, you know, at the college level, it's all about winning, especially now that, you know, college coaches are being paid in the baseball world better than ever before. Um, and that the professional level, the game is more specialized, right? You, yeah. you see guys that are there to hit home runs or strike out. And then on the pitching side, you see guys that are they're there to go out and throw 102 for an inning as opposed to having to be like 90 to 93 for, you know, for six innings or seven innings. Um, it's just that the stresses have changed so dramatically over the course of time. And, and like you implied earlier, it's sports medicine hasn't been able to keep up. So yeah. we're, we're certainly seeing more injuries. And, and, you know, a big part of that is, you know, that we need to you know figure out ways to not have people broken in the first place, but also manage them in the long term. But I think we also need to realize that sometimes it's better diagnostics. Like, you know, 10 years ago, there were a lot of doctors that didn't believe thoracic outlet syndrome existed. And now that's universally accepted in all 30 major league organizations. And, you know, the couple of you know people in the country you want to refer a thrower to if they have it. Um, so we're, we're diagnosing things better, but we're also seeing the same like patterns actually becoming different kinds of injuries, right? So, you know, Jake Peavy avulsed his lat off of his humerus in 2010 or 11, whatever it was in Chicago. Dr. Romeo basically had to invent a surgery to reattach it. And it was interesting, 2015, I saw the 17th one he had done. Um, He was a high school pitcher in Massachusetts, or excuse me, college pitcher in Massachusetts. And now I see two or three a year. Like very, very common Um, just because guys are throwing so much harder. You're seeing Terry's major injuries, which is kind of a mini lap. We're seeing anterior dislocations in throwers with guys. Typically, it's a baseball player who's very loose that starts up on an aggressive weighted ball program and acquires a lot of extra rotation really fast. And instead of just having a cuff issue or, you know, like an anterior capsule or something like that, they actually wind up with a bank heart injury, which in the past was like, a fall on an outstretched arm. It was rugby. It was something crazy. Right. I've seen a couple of those. I've seen lat repairs where the humeral shaft fractured, um, where some of the screws were put in to, to reattach. So what we're seeing is we're seeing new surgeries invented, and then we're seeing new surgeries to correct the the, comp- <laughs> the base, the complications from the initial surgeries. Baseball yeah. is in a very strange place, and the, the advances are good. 
you know, we're you know seeing a UCL repair with internal brace, certain ligament injuries are are doing better with a bracing instead of an altogether reconstruction. Dr. Jeff Dugas, I mean, you know, at Andrews Clinic, really you know pioneered that approach based on a a procedure in 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 Scottish a Scottish doctor invented for ankles, and now they're using it in throwing elbows. So it's just a really crazy time where we're seeing a lot of new stuff. One curious trend right now as well that that you know injuries are up pretty dramatically in baseball largely in part because of, you know, kind of the lack of oversight and training that, that took place for that you know year and a half during the pandemic where, you know, players weren't necessarily allowed into facilities and, you know, they were all over the place and not necessarily getting a lot of attention, but believe it or not, wrist, hand, finger, thumb issues in major league baseball are going sky high this year, highest they've ever been in history. And part of it's because uh, it's two pronged one, more and more guys are throwing incredibly hard, which means right. they have le- less command, which means more guys than ever are being hit by pitches. And partway through the year, we saw uh, Major League Baseball doing a crackdown on the sticky substances. So players who were throwing hard, he had even less command. So we're probably expecting to see even more hit by pitches. So you know now we're looking at probably having to advance our knowledge of wrist and hand and finger stuff just because the game is always evolving and sports medicine is trying to keep up. So it's... There's a lot at work there, isn't there? That's crazy, man. That's crazy. And, you know, you and I are both parents. You kind of alluded to we have to address this at each level, right? We can't just look at the pros and say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is the problem. Like, you got to start at the bottom. And you you and I both have kids. Our kids are getting involved in sports. And I'd love to know, like, your perspective, right? Because I obviously have thoughts. But I'd love to hear your thoughts in the world of baseball and how we can better develop these youth kids so that they don't have some of this stuff going on. Yeah, I think step one is you, you do have to appreciate that baseball is different. You know what I mean? Like you're, yes, you know, in, in little kids, you're going to see, you know, ACLs and, you know, 15 year olds. They're going to happen periodically. Right. They're not going to happen as often as you see growth plate injuries in baseball for growers. And, you know, the, the reason is very simple. Throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in all of sports. You know, the, the stress on the shoulder and the elbow are, are, are sky high compared to anything you encounter, you know, in, in almost any other youth sport. So we do have to protect kids from that. So I do think, you know, taking times off throughout the year, you know, listening to, you know, subjective feedback from kids of, of when things are barking up, you know, kind of listen when it whispers instead of waiting for it to yell. I think that's vitally important, but I think just as important, there's a little bit of like a finding a happy medium, right? On one hand, you want to play baseball because you actually have adaptations you need to develop, not just in terms of motor competencies, being able to, to do the things you need to be successful in the sport, but we actually do need to develop retroversion in a proximal humerus to allow for more external rotation during you know, the layback phase of throwing. That's vitally important. And if you don't have it, you're probably never going to throw a baseball at a high level down the road. But I think the other end of the spectrum, we need to give them breaks from this so that, you know, it, it doesn't become pathology, but also we have time to develop all these, these, these competencies that build this really broad foundation, you know, of, of motor potential, right. Of, you know, adjustability to, you know, unpredictable scenarios. And it was interesting. I was talking to Jose Trevino on my podcast. Jose is the, the, a catcher for the Texas Rangers in the big leagues. And what was interesting is he, he actually led the state of Texas in home runs. He set the all-time record with 25 home runs wow. his senior year. He was a shortstop and a third baseman and he went to college and they, they, they started to transition him to a catcher. They were, you know, his build is such that he, he was very well equipped for it. And he, he struggled a lot in college. And then the Rangers drafted him. He was still playing multiple positions. 2014, they made him a full-time catcher. 2017, he was named the organization's best catcher. And now he's a big leaguer. And I was talking to him, I was like, you know, like what allowed you to do this? It is so hard to be elite at, at two positions in the big leagues. And if you look at the guys that did it, like they were usually like, Hey, I was a shortstop. My arm wasn't good enough. So I went to second base, right? You know, that kind right. of thing. Or, Hey, I was a second baseman. I was pretty fast. They put me in center field. He went from shortstop and third base to catching and catching is an incredibly hard position. Yeah. You have, you have to block, you have to throw, you have to receive, you have to game call. Oh yeah. You have to go hit. You have to run the bases. You got to back up first base. You got to nurture these relationships with pitchers from all walks of life. It's, it's the hardest position because you have to constantly serve everybody else. And I asked him like, what, what was it? And he's like, I, I was a multi-sport kid in high school. I was football all the way through. I was basketball until the end of my sophomore year. I was always around different things. You know, he was competing. And then even when he got to college, 
the reps you get at third base versus shortstop versus catcher. He kind of played three positions all through college. Wow. And so when it came time to actually learn one specific position, he was super well equipped for it. And he wasn't broken, you know, because yeah. he hadn't just done the same thing over and over again. And I saw a kid for an evaluation yesterday, 15 year old kid, left-handed pitcher, really good arm, lots of potential. And he told me he was a pitcher only. I was like, hold on, we're, we're stopping right here. Like <laughs> you, you need to at least go to batting practice. You need to go out and shag fly balls in the outfield. You need to play pickup hooks with your buddy, ultimate Frisbee, whatever it is, because at 15, you will not be the athlete you can be if you're only pitching. Yes. We actually saw this with one or two guys that came to IFAST over the years where they got drafted early, only pitched, and you saw this over the course of years, this progressive loss in athleticism, right? And and then and then maybe somebody decides, oh, well, I don't think they've got the commander. They don't have the juice, or they're just not what we thought they were, and they try and convert back, and they can't do it. Yeah. You can't make up that time. So think about your kids, right? You know, yeah. they're, they're soccer, they're basketball. It, it, I can't remember the study, but it was something like 2,200 changes of direction for a midfielder in the average yes. soccer game. I remember yes. hearing that back in like grad school. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's even accurate. And you think about that's Close. part of and no, no two changes of direction are the same. Yep. That is like the most rich proprioceptive environment imaginable. And it's a constant stimulus to the fascial system to, to adapt and give you adjustability. And it's, it's perfectly complemented by strength training, right? You're bringing the, you're, you're challenging the stiffness of the tendons with all that work. You throw some strength stuff in there to make the muscle stronger. And you have this like amazing seesaw that's always in balance. Yep. You can't get that. If, if you skip soccer and just go to the gym and do, you know, three sets of 15 yards, high knee skips, like it just doesn't happen. It's, and it's very closed loop. It's the same thing over and over again. And I look at our, our big league guys, you know, so many of our guys were not like elite uh, seniors in high school. They were guys that got to college and figured it out a little bit later. They played multiple sports. They did all these things. So few guys that were like the best players in like little league and middle school, become big leaguers. Um, and I think it's because their focus gets too narrow, but you know, a starting pitcher, like you, I, I deal with this on a, on a five day rotation, even a seven day rotation in college, you got to go out of your way to find athleticism for them because yeah. yes, it's super stressful to go out and make a hundred pitches and, you know, throw six innings and, you know, field your position, cover first base, whatever it is. But like, that's four days where there's not necessarily like a crazy stimulus, you know, that's going to keep you well-rounded in athletics. We try to integrate that in our strength work and our movement competency stuff with, you know, change of direction drills, let them throw the football, do whatever we need to do to keep them, you know, athletic. Right. I love that, man. So obviously well-known, I mean, you maybe weren't the first to being baseball specific, but man, you changed the game in that world. And CSP has really changed that whole landscape. Now, with that being said, Talk to me a little bit about this state of so-called baseball-specific training, because like all good things, there's probably this bell curve, right? Like it hit really well for a while, and now I think you're seeing a deterioration. And maybe that's just me, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think the problem, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think you have a lot of former players that are getting into strength conditioning. Yep. So they understand how the game is played. But you think about what we're all doing, you know, whether you're working with soccer and basketball guys, I'm working with baseball players or our tennis guys or whatever it is, football quarterbacks, we're all chasing adaptation, right? Yep. And that's adaptation, either optimize performance or reduce the risk of, of injury during performance or in the preparation for it. And adaptation is going to be dependent on a lot of things, right? It's, yep. it's, it's dependent on musculoskeletal adaptations, probably the, the fascial system that overlays it, over, which could probably fall into that same umbrella. It's dependent on physiological adaptations, right? Things yeah. like, you know, aerobic competencies and energy system development. And then, you know, there's, there's certainly going to be a, a neuromuscular component. How do we develop the nervous system to, you know, effectively communicate with those other systems? And then last but not least, there's like a, there's a technical proficiency aspect of it, right? It's, yep. you know, how do you, how do you manipulate the baseball when you throw a curveball, or, you know, are you, you know, messy with your footwork or are you Eric Cressy who hasn't kicked the soccer ball in 15 years? Like they're, they're <laughs> right. very different things. Right. And I, I just think that gets overlooked. You shouldn't be writing programs unless you understand all four of those systems in, in some capacity. Um, you know, and, and there are many other systems that we probably don't even speak to, right. That didn't even speak to like optimal motor learning strategies and how you coach, um, you know, which would certainly impact how the, how the brain communicates. So I just think that gets really, really overlooked right now because people, 
they have more accessibility than ever before to sexy training initiatives, right? You can go on, on Twitter and see cool velocity-based training protocols, or you can go and, you know, find the latest, greatest weighted ball program on YouTube. And, you know, you can get a hand-me-down program from someone who's at college, even though you're a 14-year-old kid, you're not ready for it. And we just see this so, so commonly. I'll say it's getting better. You know what I mean? There's more college strength edition coaches that are doing just baseball. I just don't see a whole lot of, of, of people out there that really fundamentally understand the unique characteristics and adaptations that we're, we're seeing in the baseball world. So many of these guys are successful because they got long middle fingers, you know, crazy hypermobility and know how to manipulate a baseball. And, and folks are saying that they need to squat 500 and do a magical weighted ball program to get where they need to be. We've used weighted balls in some capacity since 2007. They're, they're a piece of the puzzle, but really they're, they're one method where the application is what matters. And the application is, is one piece of a very large puzzle. So, you know, what, what do I think people need to do to, to remedy this? I think you need to learn your anatomy. I think you need to understand why we see growth plate injuries, the proximal humerus in, in 13 year old players, but we don't see them in, you know, soccer players. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to also understand physiological adaptations so that when you prescribe sprinting or distance running or whatever it is you give to people that you understand specifically what you're trying to actually achieve with them. Um, you need to understand how to coach. You gotta understand why most of the time external focus cues are going to be your play, but sometimes for arm care, I really love internal focus cues. And there's, there's absolutely a place for, you know, what we're trying to actually you know take care of. And then last but not least, you gotta understand this, the, the fundamental demands of the sport. Yep. You know, I think everybody in the planet thinks they have all the solutions for people they've never met. And we have to understand that there, there are dynamics in play that, you know, that, that, you know, the, the average fan doesn't, necessarily know about so they may be working from kind of a, a, a false set of pretenses yeah i remember something you put it was either on twitter or instagram a while back but like hey when you're heckling that baseball player out there yeah. he's one of like twenty thousand guys that's ever played professional baseball ever yeah. so just cool your jets guy like you're not you're not as awesome as you'd like to think it's insanely hard it's you know it's funny they it's almost like people have you ever noticed how no one ever criticizes professional golfers? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's because every schmuck can go out and play golf and realize he sucks at it. Right. 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 Like, it's really hard to be like, you know what? I, I'm pretty sure I could have gone first to third on that single to right field better than that pinch runner who ran last night. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I totally could be a third base coach and, and know exactly what to do at all times. Like they just, they have no fundamental awareness of like what the game is like at the highest level. And I, I distinctly remember Buddy Morris talking about this. So yeah. Buddy, Buddy, you know, obviously, you know, had experience, you know, at Pitt, he'd been in the NFL and he came back to the NFL. And I remember talking to him at a, at a seminar and he was like, the average person has no idea how fast like NFL football is played until, unless you're on the level of the field. Like it is yes. watching car accidents nonstop as people run into yes. each other. And I'll be honest, see, the first time I ever watched uh, John Carlos Stanton do his T routine, I, I had the same feeling. Like G hits the ball harder than anybody on the planet. He hit a ball 122, um, which tied his own record for the season the other day. There's, you know, there's maybe five guys on the planet who can hit a ball 120 miles an hour, and he does it effortlessly. It's 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 just awe-inspiring for me. And so when you when you have those experiences up close, it's just you know, it's a totally different set of rules, a set of stressors, set of demands. And, you know, and I see it all the time, you know, you, yeah. you see when guys throwing 103 as well. They're just, they're different. So sometimes you, you know, you always want to coach and, and help every can, but sometimes you want to, you want to ask questions and listen so you can learn. Yes. I love it, man. I love it. So coming back to this weighted ball mm -hmm. discussion, because I think it's fascinating. Uh, I remember one of our mutual athletes. I won't name the name because I don't know. <laughs> he would like me to say this, but we are talking and literally he reports to college and the first day they start on a weighted ball program. I, I'm not kidding. I think it was a 16 ounce weighted ball and one of the other kids tears his UCL first day. Okay. So I want to go to you because like you said, you've been doing this 10, 11 years now, at least what's the role of weighted ball programming and then maybe how and when do you think it should be incorporated into a program? Yeah, so there's there's two elements to this, and like I said, we've used weighted balls since '07. I was Even guessing longer. at the time. You know, I I had an actual, I had, I had an idea of what I wanted to accomplish with them, but I rolled it out in a really limited context. We had a guy, Sean Havlin. I'll always remember. Sean actually works on in the front office for the Boston Red Sox now. He's retired, yeah. and I remember 2009. Sean. 
uh, actually, excuse me, started up with us in the fall of 2008. He was Ivy League pitcher of the year at Harvard in 2008. And I remember he came in for his first evaluation. Sean was a 5'11 righty, you know, not necessarily like a great body. And he was, you know, 88 to 90. And I think he was a 33rd rounder that signed for, you know, a thousand bucks and a plane ticket or whatever it was. <laughs> and I, I remember talking to Sean during our battle. I'm like, you know, 88 to 90, 5'11 righties don't stick around in this game very long unless they do something really different. I'm like, are you open to trying this? He's like, I got nothing to lose. Let's do this. So to his credit, that offseason, he got after it, you know, and, and I give him a lot of credit because this was not just like, yes, we got him long tossing. Yes, we got him throwing away balls. Um, but he also overhauled his strength training stuff. He threw the med ball. He sprinted. He cleaned up his diet. He did a lot of different things well. And I distinctly remember, you know, it's it's early to mid-February. I get a text from him. He had gone back to Harvard to throw live to, you know, his former teammates since he was drafted. And he goes, I was I was 90 to 92, touching 93 today. You're really good at what you do. I'm like, <laughs> all right, I guess I guess it worked. Right. And I, I'll, I'll never forget the text. Because I was like, I, I really pulled that out of thin air, just based on what I know of like physiology, how he moved and, and what I hoped the response we were trying to get. And sure enough, Sean went out that year. He was like a Midwest League All-Star. He was 91 or 94, touched 95. The velo, you know, continued beyond that. It was, you know, it was, for me, it was like, wow, this is this is something that's sustainable. This will work. And I mean, I was probably the only strength coach at the time who was writing throwing programs in the history of the planet. Um, and I was I was guessing. Right. Um, but we got it more fine tuned. And, and you look at like a Corey Kluber. Corey started up with us really in, in not long after. I think he was 2010, 11 offseason was his first one. And Corey was to some degree a little bit of a guinea pig with it as well. He was a double A arm right there. And sure enough, by the time Corey was in the big leagues, his velo had gone up. And he felt like it made it more durable. When I looked back on it, I was I was seeing it as a it was post-activation potentiation, right? The heavy stuff just made the light stuff go faster. So we were just looking to create contrast. And I still do believe that's a big part of, of what we're trying to achieve. I also thought that it probably was filling an important place on this uh, absolute speed to absolute strength continuum, where absolute speed was throw a five-ounce ball, absolute strength was lift heavy stuff. The strength speed stuff was med balls. So the speed strength stuff could be weighted balls. It was a specific yeah. way to train power and, and maybe capitalize on a certain part of that force velocity curve that we hadn't touched yet. What I didn't realize though, is that in the years that followed, there were more and more people that started to talk about like arm shaping, that using weighted balls might be something that could actually change somebody's path. Um, you know, meaning they could shorten an arm action that was too deep because the last thing you want to do is if you're, you're throwing a one pound med ball or one pound weighted ball is get really long with your arm action. It's right. kind of like moving back kid all the way to the end of the seesaw. It just doesn't feel right. <laughs> so, you know, that became a big thing. I, I think it's become a little overdone. So what's really happened now, there've been a, there've been a couple different things. One, people have seen results. So they've gotten more aggressive with it, right? If if, yep. if you can drive your car 70 miles an hour and you're a dumbass, you're going to drive at 100 miles an hour and, and see if you die. You know, <laughs> so there's 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 that side of it is that there are always going to be people that are naturally gravitated to the extremes. Second, you know, one of the other things that we've seen is we've seen an adjustment where when we were doing it, all of the balls had seams. They were yeah. they were baseballs that happened to have seams, okay. and now we've gone to you know what they call plyo care balls. They're, they're squishier. Um, they tend to be easier. You can throw them against cement walls. You can throw them against, you know, tarps, things like that. So, you know, they still break, but they do have a little bit more durability as opposed to just like chucking a regular ball against a fence or God forbid, a partner that has to actually try to catch it. <laughs> so I, I think that potentially we are seeing some potential negative consequences of using that guys that uh, effectively grip the ball heavier because it doesn't have a seam and it, it gives, so, you know, my concern there would be guys who they forget how to like actually manipulate the baseball. So spin efficiency goes down, they throw accidental cutters, they don't get feedback from their catch partner on what the baseball is absolutely doing. So you worry about guys that are, you know, spending 70% of their throwing volume on weighted balls. I also worry that, you know, with all that extra gripping, are we seeing a higher incidence of, of flexor injuries? So I'm probably not really inclined to use those with guys who have low spin efficiency fastballs, a history of flexor issues. Again, that's very preliminary. And then the last thing is just, just like any implement, whether we're talking about, you know, high-speed treadmills or, you know, whatever you want to talk about is if something becomes more commonplace, people are less attentive with it. When it's new yeah, and novel, they're very focused. The drills you see, we probably, I bet 75% of the kids that come to us when we watch them do their weighted ball drills on the first day, it, it makes you want to throw up in your mouth. It's so bad. <laughs> They're just not putting themselves in good positions to be successful. They're losing track of the why behind why they do it. So 
my feeling is you need to understand why you're utilizing them, have a clear understanding of it. And then I think building on that, probably just as importantly, we need to make sure we know how to use them. I think the, the biggest mistake people make is using them too soon. One of the things that we always do with our offseason throwing programs is I want guys playing catch with a five ounce baseball for two to three weeks before we do any weighted ball stuff. And the reason is really simple. If, if they've been shut down for a period, I want them to gradually gain back their external rotation. Yep. And what's really interesting is if you look at uh, an adaptive, adaptive study. So Reinhold, I think it was back in 2009, looked at major league pitchers over the course of a season. And he found the average one gains about 15, excuse me, five degrees of shoulder ER over the course of a season they're going to be guys that gain 25 and guys that lose 15. So that's an average. It doesn't right. speak to the, to the standard deviation. He did a follow-up study a couple of years ago that showed effectively a, you know, one in four people gets hurt doing a weighted ball program. So the injury rate is pretty high. Usually they are the people that are too aggressive too soon. And what happens is they gain a lot of external rotation really quickly. So what winds up happening, you know, their ligament gets left out to dry and they have a Tommy John, they get a lat strain, they have an anterior capsule injury, they have some kind of undersurface cuff irritation. The, the biggest risk factor in throwers in, in that world is having a lot of passive external rotation, but not having sufficient active control to really, you know, take advantage of it. Everybody wants to fall in love with glenohumeral internal rotation deficit. You need zero degrees of IR to throw a baseball. Zero. Right. Like, and, I, and I'm not saying that IR is not important. It's, as we both know, it's representative of, of high quality systemic movement. And right. you know, if a guy walks in with 20 degrees of IR, it's probably not a great situation, but there are guys who, who have 40 that have thrown baseballs with $200 million contracts in the big leagues for a long time and been totally fine with it. So more important is how well do you control externally rotated position to zero degrees than how do you control zero to, to you know, 60 or 70. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So I'm, I, I'm excited for this one. It's a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. The gods anoint you the ruler of all baseball specific training and youth and put youth development kind of under that model as well. Right. Mm -hmm. What changes would you make right now today to make the baseball world a little bit better? Yeah. I, I think the first thing is, is modulating workload at the youngest you know, ages where, where kids get into trouble. You know, really, if we look at the research on baseball, it's, it's actually surprising. There's only two things that actually predict that you'll get hurt. Like even a lot of like the flexibility measures and things like that aren't great. The only two things that predict if you will get hurt is overuse. You know, do you pitch while you're, you're fatigued? Do you go to more showcases? Do you throw more than hundred innings? So one is modulating workload. And then second being weak. Um, mm. We know that pretty much every strength test of the rotator cuff predicts injuries over and over again. And don't get me wrong, there's stuff that, you know, limited shoulder flexion increases your risk of elbow injury and professional pitchers and all that. But, you know, those, those don't necessarily carry over as great with the younger levels. And even like when we talk about pitching mechanics, we really don't know what healthy pitching mechanics are. You know, right. we heard about like the inverted W is the devil and Tommy John twist, you know, taking the ball to center field is the devil. Research shows they aren't inherently any more stressful. Most of what we know about pitching mechanics has to do with optimizing performance and not actually keeping athletes healthy. When it comes to keeping people healthy, it's don't be weak and don't be overused. So if you can handle those two things at the youngest level, you're in a great situation. Part three to that is probably optimize pregame warmups. Like I know you've, you've probably read it a million times, like the FIFA 11, right? FIFA 11 was like the most underwhelming warmup in the history of conditioning. <laughs> like it, it yeah. might've been, I mean, it did not, no knock to the authors, but that might've been written by a chimp. And it, it reduced hamstrings injuries by like, what, like 60 something percent. Yeah. Um, like just warming up reduces your risk of so many injuries because it's, it's a chance to just get reps in to optimize high quality movement. So if you can get, like kids away from just doing the dumb arm circles and, you know, jogging a lap of the field and actually doing something that builds some movement competency, things are going to change dramatically. And the, the funny thing about it is if you do those three things at the big league level, you're going to keep guys healthy too, right? Yeah. It's get, get them strong in the right places. You know, and the extension of that is obviously develop some, you know, some elasticity in the guys that need it, you know, and, and make sure that you know, they're warming up correctly and make sure that they don't get overused. Good things happen. It's, it's pretty consistent across all levels. It's just so funny because you could take those same three, and I don't have correlative studies in basketball, but like mm -hmm. overuse, don't play five on five all summer, right? Like yep. ramp up. Don't be so weak that your joints take a pounding. 
uh, actually warm up because I can't tell you how many guys have come to me and they're like, oh, my knees are hurting today. I'm like, well, you just came off the court, right? Yeah. Well, what'd you do to warm up? Well, nothing. I just started shooting, <laughs> you know? It's like, well, come on, fellas. Like that, that's so simple, but I think that's carried over to basically any sport. If you, you know, know. I, it, Go ahead. It, it underlies this whole sports science discussion, right? Because yeah. you're in it, you know, in a, in an even heavier world, right? You're in the load management world of basketball yeah. and soccer where, you know, and, and, and that's load management. They play two to three games a week, right? Yeah. The NBA is playing fewer back-to-back games than they've ever played before. Baseball, as I speak right now, we're in the middle of a 17 games in 16 days stretch. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, that's so that's, crazy. You, in baseball, you're going to play 200 games in 230 days. You're lucky if you get two, maybe three off days a month. And usually what happens is you have like a drawn out rain delay where a game gets canceled. So you spend 17 hours at the ballpark and go to bed at 3 a.m. And then you have to make it up like oh. two weeks late, two weeks later on one of your off days. So like the load in, in major league baseball is the stuff that when I talk to coaches and like outside sports, like they're blown away. It's like, I don't know how you do it Yeah. because if something is irritated, like you, you, you can't just like have two days to bounce back. You've got to like hit it immediately. But this load management discussion, right. There's always two ends of the spectrum, right? They're the people that are like, they're soft. You just need to make them stronger. You need to build a more robust athlete. And you have people at the other end of the spectrum where it's like, Hey, don't, don't exceed your acute quantum ratio, all this stuff. You have to have both perspectives. Because right? yeah, you think about the absolutely. things I just described, like there's the acute preparation and warmups, but in reality, the get strong is is build a robust athlete, and then don't compete through crazy fatigue is the you know the load management end of the spectrum. Yeah, it works at all levels, but not if you're you're inherently attached to one end of the, that continuum. No, that's awesome, man. Okay, I know we're up against the clock here, but I got my lightning round for you. So all four right, questions beautiful. for you. Number one, I really want to hear this because I have a very distinct memory, but I want to know what's your favorite memory from us creating products together. Holy cow. I, I, I'll distinctly remember this. So uh, we filmed Magnificent Mobility, right? This, yeah. is, this is November of 05. Uh-huh. I, I, I come to Indianapolis. I remember we were filming at that gymnasium in Fishers, right? It, yeah, it was in Carmel, but yes, close in enough. Carmel, yeah. close, I'm pretty good. Uh, and Bill and I, I remember Bill came by, Craig Rasmussen came by to say what's up, everything. We did all that. So that was November. Yeah. Right? And this is the olden days where like you couldn't just like email stuff over on Dropbox. Like you had to like literally send raw files for them to edit DVDs. Yes. So it took months and we went through all the revisions and everything. They were mailing DVDs for us to plug into our computer when computers actually had <laughs> DVD players. Yeah. And I remember you came out, I was still living in Southern Connecticut. Yeah. So you came out and stayed with Tony and I for a couple of days. Yeah. And we created our, our online kind of, uh, you know, product sales thing. It was your, your shopping yeah. cart. Right. So this is 06, I think, when that product comes out. And you can't, I think you came and trained at Southside while I you did. were there, right? I did. And we got a lift in. I was probably yeah. a Friday night bench session. Yeah. But I distinctly remember we set this thing up and the next morning woke up and somebody in Australia had bought our DVD. And I was like, holy crap, they actually care what we have to say. <laughs> so that that for me was like a very eye-opening moment of like, hey, the world is your market. Um, if you invest in yourself, you keep getting better people actually care what you have to say. So it was, I, I think it, you know, I'm sure you probably felt something similar in the sense that it was, it was eye-opening that people actually wanted to hear more from us you yeah. know, because it's always one thing when like people on internet forums or people who read your articles, like they, they like it, they give you compliments because it's free. Right. But right. when you, when you actually have people investing their hard earned money, with you, it's a, it's, it's, it's a big responsibility, but it's also very humbling. So Absolutely. I always think back on that one. Dude, that's crazy. But first off, great memory. And yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I'm thinking through this now. All I remember from that weekend is when we came and shot, I was coming off a knee surgery, That's couldn't right. do much. So you did really all the dynamic stuff. So you basically <laughs> did warm ups for four hours That's and it's right. like five o'clock and you're like, hey, want to get a lift? I'm like, dude, are you serious? And I just remember you going in and doing good mornings with like 365. And I was like, <laughs> this guy's spine is just made out of like, sheet metal or something i don't know and, i mean i turned every squat i ever had in a powerlifting meet into a good morning so it was <laughs> it was some kind of specificity of training i guess yeah we might have to do a show that's just memory lane because <laughs> we could i think we could entertain people for an hour okay <laughs> number two tell me more about this business mentorship that's coming up all right on yeah so we um uh, p and I, I think, I think this will be the sixth or seventh time we've we've had it um started out as something we would do as like a tag on to our fall seminar 
really what happened was over the years, um, it actually happened. We would run our baseball mentorship yeah. and invariably during the baseball mentorship, someone would like go poke their head in, in Pete's office and be like, <laughs> Hey, I really love your business model. Could you like talk to me more about it? And so the questions became like more and more consistent every time we would run it. So Pete on the second to last day of our business mentorship would have like a one hour, you know, basically Q and a, where he just like reserved the conference room in our building. And then, you know, field questions from the gym owners that were in attendance and over the course of time, we kind of realized that this was like a curriculum we could build out. So we talk about kind of the, the four, you know, pillars of, of running a gym. It's, you know, it's basically lead generation, lead conversion, retention and systems, which are all interrelated. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, don't understand it. And what we've really done is we've, we've recognized that, uh, you know, what we did in Massachusetts from 2007 to 2014, was we built a lot of systems and then we rolled a lot of them out in Florida and some of them worked phenomenally and some of them didn't. They're just different geographic dynamics. You know, Massachusetts is more high school and college, Florida, like 49% of our revenue yearly is, is professional athletes. So it's just a different world. It's a very right. cyclical business. So we recognize that some things were scalable and some weren't. And a lot of business, you know, folks in the, in the fitness space, they just want you to follow their model. And so I think we've become really good at asking questions and trying to help people figure out what's right for them. So we put this thing together and the, the feedback's been really good. Good. The funny thing about it too is, um, so we actually bring in our accountant. Oh, wow. who's, who's awesome. He's a small business specialist. He does a one hour talk. And what's funny is invariably, basically the, the event becomes an investment and not expense just because of his talk. Anything you get from Pete and I is gravy, but we had, believe it or not, one guy who was a, a fitness business owner in Seattle who went through that course when we had it in Florida and he looked into reclassifying as an S corp uh, instead of what he was doing. And it saved him uh, 10 grand in the year that followed. So yeah. we actually, we got like some, he sent us some coffee and a thank you note from Seattle because <laughs> basically he made 10 times more than he ever spent on the, the event and then some. So um, we're running it actually online still in light of, of COVID. It's going to be August 25th and 26th. Um, uh, this month. So I'm um, still have a few spots left, but it's always a fun experience. And we're like, we're a very open book. People ask us questions and, you know, we don't, we don't call it a day until everything's answered. So um, excited to do it. Awesome, man. Love it. Okay. So everybody knows Eric Cressy, author, coach, speaker, consultant, all those things. What's the hardest part of parenting? Bedtime. I, I don't know. Oh yeah. Is, yes. I gotta, I gotta ask, I actually want to ask you, cause I have a, so Andrew Millett was their physical therapist at our Massachusetts facility. And Matt Marizio is one of our long-term clients and one of my best friends. Andrew's got two kids. Matt's got six and oh I have three. Gosh. So we commiserate and there's like a, a three-way group text. Every time one of us has to do bath and bedtime by ourselves, it's like, you know, he's <laughs> flying back and forth. Like, oh yeah. guys, pray, pray for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a very different male female dynamic where, where females, they feel it's very nurturing to do bath time and they love like books and everything. And at that time, I am just like, clean up your crap. Stop <laughs> arguing. I don't know. You don't need another glass of milk. Yes. You already brushed your teeth. I don't care that you left your stuffed animal downstairs. Yeah. It's we're in this age of like procrastination oh, yeah. where they, they always want to find a way to stay up later. Yeah. Um, so I don't find bedtime at all endearing. My wife loves it. <laughs> right. So I know that's that's insensitive. I get way more excited about like playing with ball in the backyard and connect four and sorry and yeah. stuff like that and dropping them off at school and singing in the car. But bedtime, like I could probably do without. <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to tell you, dude, my daughter's 10. So she's a couple years ahead of yours and it's not any better. <laughs> they drag put it herself to bed, right? Like, well, I, yeah, you know, like you wish, but then she like wants to pet the dog for the tenth time. You know, well, Finn needs me to say good night. I'm like, he's fine. Go to bed. They, they know what they're doing. Yes, they're way way smarter than us, which is a- astounding. Absolutely. Okay. Last but not least, number four. What's next for the Eric Cressy? Win a World Series. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's the biggest thing. I mean, that's that's anything less than that is is not the goal, um, in, in the world that kind of, that we live in. So I want to be part of that process. And, and I think, you know, obviously that's, that's a very professional goal. Um, you know, I, I think on a, maybe a more objective side of things, I want to be a great teacher. Um, I realized that a lot of my success, you know, professionally is, is heavily predicated on our ability to scale our operations, whether that's at our, our two facilities, um, you know, whether that's in, you know, seminars, whether that's in, you know, what I do with the Yankees and trying to make sure that, you know, what we're implementing on the big league side of things is also impacting our work in, you know, in high A or the Dominican Academy or whatever it is. So 
I can't be everywhere at once. So I, I really want to continue to refine, you know, how I teach and, and how I scale, you know, the expertise that I feel like I can share, you know, and certainly keeping, um, keeping, you know, sights on the fact that it's most important to be a, a good husband and a good dad as all that stuff goes on, because it, it is a lot of competing demands. For sure. For sure. Well, Eric, man, so great to catch up with you. Hopefully it's not like a year between uh, <laughs> the next time that we do this, but I know. where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great stuff that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. EricCressy.com is kind of the hub for newsletter, blog, uh, the podcast, which is you know heavily in the baseball world, but also has a lot of stuff in kind of the sports science, nutrition, et cetera realm. We're doing a home and home series, so we'll soon have a Mike Robertson interview up there. Yes. We're yeah. going to talk about how all he's doing impacts the baseball world as well. Um, but that's, you know, and it's Eric Cressy on, on Twitter and Instagram too. So, I love thanks, it. Man. I love it. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on, buddy. I really appreciate it. No sweat. This is great. Good to catch up. Thanks for having me. my friend that does it for this week's show with eric really hope you enjoyed it like i said up top just so cool seeing and hearing this guy's evolution over the years eric and i come from very similar upbringings we were both very passionate about powerlifting that obviously played a huge role in our development early on it definitely influenced how we trained our clients and athletes so to know that he as well as myself, have evolved away from it to some degree. And it's not to say that we don't put an emphasis on strength training because I know we both do, but maybe taking a step back and saying, okay, maximum strength has its role, but how much does any given client or athlete need to be successful? And I think we've all learned over the years that, hey, there's more to building a great athlete, a resilient athlete than just lifting heavy all the time. So love the conversation. As you could tell, I mean, Eric's my guy, so I had a great time catching up with him. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please do me one small favor. Wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now and subscribe so that you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Doesn't matter. It could be iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon. Wherever you consume podcasts, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.